Just a quick warning. This episode includes a brief discussion of suicide. If you are experiencing thoughts of suicide, or if you just want to talk, you aren't alone. To reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, call 800-273-8255. Okay, here's the show. Is it fun to overcome this stuff? No, but it's satisfying sometimes. It makes me feel strong. And it makes me feel like I can be there for other people. Welcome to Getting Through. I'm Andrea Sonnenberg. Today I'm speaking with Randy. Randy isn't his real name because he wanted to tell me his story, but avoid the stigma that we so often talk about on this show. He reminded me that life doesn't need to be taken too seriously. He feels things deeply. Even superhero movies make him cry. Watching the first time the superhero saves a kid or the grandma, he can't help it. And Randy loves all performances. Hearing someone sing a technically challenging song in the context of a good story moves him. And it's this feeling of connecting to others that helps him overcome. From the outside, I look like a pretty normal guy, I guess you would say. Um, But sometimes the most normal people, there's there could be a lot of things kind of uh, bubbling under the surface that they're struggling with that are tough. Definitely. Definitely. I sometimes say that mental health struggles are definitely an invisible illness. And uh, a lot of times we don't know what's going on underneath the surface. Well, I would love it if you would talk a little bit about what your family is like and, and kind of what it was like growing up. Uh, yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area to a, a, a nice uh, middle-class Jewish family in the East Bay and uh, had a pretty normal childhood. It was a good family, a strong family, a moral and ethical family. We were never we were never rich, but we were never poor, at least in, in my lifetime. And the thing is, like you were saying, uh, it, mental health issues can be this invisible illness. In my family, diabetes ran in the family. So we mm-hmm. sort of knew, you know, Uncle Bob and Grandpa uh, John, you know, they had uh, they had diabetes. So, you know, don't eat too much sugar, watch your weight, exercise and all this kind of stuff. And so luckily I never got adult onset diabetes because my family sort of warned me and prepared me for that. What we didn't talk about was that bipolar runs in the family, Mm. that addiction runs in the family, Mm. that eating disorders run in the family, that depression runs in the family. I also think Jewish kids of my generation were not, we didn't live through the Holocaust and our, our parents didn't go through it. Um, but we were very exposed to like Holocaust visuals and stories as like chill as children. And I understand, I think it's important to teach kids about this because you grow up thinking like, well, I'm going to be on the lookout for this no matter where it pops up, right? But that is not only a, that's just a crazy inherited trauma to take on. Uh, and, you know, I, I asked my dad about this. I said, how often do you listen? How often do you think about the Holocaust? And he said, every day. So you get somebody who is like deeply ingrained in history in the Holocaust and somebody who's like, you know, uh, trying to get by on the way he looks 
that's a dangerous chemical composition and eating disorders just what emerged and it's congenital it's just in the family but did you grow up with a pretty, pretty traditional food culture so you know everybody ate normally and no everybody was really messed up i mean th- th- i mean even though like my my you know my grandparents didn't go through the holocaust they all went through the great depression mm-hmm. there was extreme food weirdness like mm-hmm. constantly to the point where my sister and i we have to tell my parents like we were out we were having dinner with my family the other day and my sister had to say dad you can't talk about the way other people eat mm-hmm. everything was just like this is the way this person looks this is the way this person eats da, 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 da. and uh yeah look i don't blame my parents for my problems because uh they gave me a good life the point is that I feel guilty eating, not because it makes me changes my body, but because what my people have gone through and the Mm -hmm. times they haven't had food is so ingrained in my Mm -hmm. identity. And although the other mental health issues in his family were less obvious, there were clues. Well... You know, there's, you know, it's the thing about families is sometimes there's, there's whispers here or there and you're like, oh, God, mm-hmm. seems really sad. She's always pacing around. Oh, what's it? What's up? You know, oh, I heard that, you know, uh, after your uncle was born, there was an issue and she had to, you know, uh, uh, seek help. But, you know, there's just kind of whispers. Oh, mm-hmm. your, your auntie, you know, she's had struggles with this, but it wasn't like something that was discussed openly, you know, like, Hey, grandpa has diabetes. Right. But the bipolar running the family was not something that I found out about until way later. And that is the thing that affects me the most. So I'm, I'm what you call, I've been diagnosed what you call bipolar two. One minute you think you're the master of the universe and the next you think you're a grain of sand. When did you begin first having difficulties and, and what was that like? Yeah, I mean... You know, I was kind of awkward kid and, you know, just wasn't good at sports, wasn't really in shape and was just kind of a dork, not good with girls and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, when I was about 16 or 17, I had a French teacher who said that he told me he didn't look in mirrors. And I was like, what? And this guy was really cool. He's kind of a cipher. I could never really figure him out. And he told me that. And I was like, that's really interesting. Then I had another friend who was my age and he said, you know, I don't I don't eat sugar anymore. So I quit sugar and I took a poster for the film adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's breakfast of champions. Mm-hmm. And I taped it on the mirror, much to my sister's chagrin and went about this for a few months. And I lost a lot of weight and my, my energy levels were up and I felt good. And then the not looking in the mirrors, I stopped freaking out so much about how, you know, I looked or didn't look or whatever. And suddenly like the girl at school, I liked who didn't like me, you know, suddenly she likes me, you know, suddenly I'm getting the, the starring role in the the school play, not the angry, weird villain guy, but the, the handsome young guy. And it felt really good. And I kind of got addicted to people telling me, Hey, you're looking good, man. For the rest of his high school career, Randy's entire focus became achievement. He was getting good grades and was very involved in theater. He became the captain of the improv team, 
worked on directing a movie, and starred in the school play. But it didn't always feel perfect. So I was like, I'm going to figure out how to be a high performing person. Like I had like more responsibility when I was 17 than I think I do now. <laughs> As like a, we expect so much of high school kids, you know what I mean? And yeah. like I just had, you know, it was like waking up, doing sit ups, then go for a run. Then, you know, have like half a bowl of cereal, get to school. OK, well, you have rehearsal after school, so you can't do homework after school. So do homework while other people are at lunch. You go into the library, do your homework really quick. Mm-hmm. You get in there. Um, you know, go out to San Francisco. We got to film this footage. Oh, got to come back. We're going to have improv practice. Um, and I was handling pretty well. And I was kind of like, I felt great. But when I would just stop and think about it, I would sort of go through these, like in the shower in the morning, I have these like crazy panic attacks. Like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. After high school, Randy went to college where he immediately got involved in musical theater, studying hard and continuing to put pressure on himself to achieve. So then go off to college and, you know, <laughs> my roommate's like a drug dealer. I'm thrown into this crazy world. So I'm studying Greek drama. You know, I'm sitting in, in my side of the room reading Aeschylus, mm-hmm. you know, and Aristotle's poetics, right? And I'm getting a 4.0. And then there's this like, there was this whole operation. People were coming up to the windows like a drive through. So suddenly, nice little kid reading his classic Greek drama, uh, doesn't even eat sugar, is just like thrown into like right. dead craziness, depravity. Right. And so I was like, you know, I kind of got drawn in. And despite his good boy persona, things began to unravel. As he began to party and do more drugs, his relationship to food became worse and he developed bulimia. When you're young, you have this like kind of crazy energy. So I could like wake up and I'm not eating in 24 hours, go run three miles, smoke a cigarette and then go to rehearsal. You know what I mean? Right. Did your family know what was going on with you at this point? No, I don't think so. So, but I finally admitted to my friends, just kind of told everybody, hey, this is what's up. You know, you all know. And then I called and I was like, I got to tell my parents. Afterwards, he began to see a therapist. But unfortunately, it wasn't the right fit, and he was prescribed the wrong medication. Just did not connect with this guy. But he said, oh, you're depressed. So um, here, take this uh, Prozac. So the thing about Prozac is if you are depressed, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll help you feel better. But if you are bipolar, mm. it can push you from depression into a supercharged kind of mania. Mm. And this is really when I went insane. Randy describes this next phase as full of melodrama. His behavior was affecting all of his relationships, and it escalated, coming to a head this one night. So I just took all of the drugs in the house. My life is flashing in front of me as like my stomach is like tearing itself apart and my mind is just like tripping to the wind. And I wake up and I'm like, shit, I made it. I'm alive. All right. Well, I got to save myself. So I crawl into my cousin's room and I'm like, take me to the hospital. Thankfully, he survived, but he continued to struggle. So what did you do next? You know, continued to party hard and, um, was still anorexic, was still bulimic. I had a rule, you, you know, you either you can eat today or you can smoke cigarettes today. You know what I mean? If you eat, uh, nope, you don't get cigarettes. And if you smoke cigarettes, uh, no, you don't get to eat. I mean, that's truly insane. And that's the problem with eating disorders. You can quit cigarettes. No one needs cigarettes. No one needs booze. No one needs any of that shit, but you need food. So that's why it's kind of the toughest and the most insidious uh, physically. 
how did you end up getting help and, and getting onto a healthy road? Yeah, you know, I finally found a therapist who, uh, a psychiatrist um, who sort of whipped me into shape. She said, you know, you're, you know, I, I remember I came in <laughs> to therapy and I like was just hung over and she's like, I could smell the booze on you. Mm. You know, you're uh, emotionally abusive to those people around you. You're not nice to your sister. You're not nice to your friends and the people on your, your improv team and the people you're doing plays with, you treat people like shit. And so I'm going to lay down the law with you. And I'm also going to say, you have to take this medication that stabilizes your mood. So th I did get help. Was she the one that diagnosed you with the bipolar disorder? Yes. So it seems like it took a while to get to the point where you were actually diagnosed correctly. Two years of this, uh, this pathology uh, before it was finally diagnosed. He finally found a psychiatrist who provided the correct diagnosis and medication. She helped him understand the importance of his family and friends. And all of this was crucial for Randy in beginning to lead a mentally and physically healthy lifestyle. You know, it's so crazy because just like the the way like the healthcare system works, there can just be like some little quirk in this in some something happens where you know, your, your doctor goes out of network or, mm -hmm. you know, they, they raise the price of the copay and the prescription. I don't even remember, but it, there would just be one little thing would make it just one step more difficult to get my medication. You're not the first person to, to tell me that it's very difficult. After Randy graduated from college, he began to pursue a career in acting but he soon realized that although he loved the art form, the scrutiny and rejection involved in constant auditions negatively impacted both his body and self-image. It's soul crushing. I mean, it's, it's the most awesome thing and the worst thing. I mean, to hold an audience in your hand uh, is the best thing in the world, uh, but it's like a drug. I mean, there's a lot of, most of it is down, you know, uh, and, and there's a, there's a little bit of, of up and, Unfortunately, I just couldn't hack it. You know what I mean? I couldn't continue to be because with acting so wrapped up in my, in the way I, I look, you know what I mean? So I couldn't, I just couldn't walk around worrying about everything I ate, everything. I, I mean, I just, I couldn't continue to walk around constantly with this camera, this audience around me of, you know, what am I going to look like at this audition? What am I going to look like during this performance? Oh, I got a show. I don't feel good about myself. You know, and I look back at pictures. I'm like, oh, I look great. What the F was my problem? But um, ultimately, I just couldn't, I couldn't make that final sacrifice. I couldn't really, you know, I, I kind of accidentally got handed a normal life. You know, now I'm a, you know, regular guy with a good job and a house and, and a kid. It all started when a good friend asked him to work at a tech startup, sending Randy down a whole new life trajectory. He hasn't always been able to stay on medication or in therapy, but he has left his unhealthy relationship with substances and his self-image behind. Can you tell me how you would describe your relationship with your mental health now? So, yeah, it's it's a horse that has occasionally bucked me. It's tried to kick me in the face, but it's taken me very far. Is it, is it, uh, is it hard to be depressed, to be low? Yes. Have I, has that taught me some degree of humility and understanding and empathy for other people who suffer? 
Yes. If somebody came to me and they said, we'll do a magic spell or you just, you know, some acupuncture or something, or, you know, you do someone said, if you do peyote and go out into the Mojave, you'll no longer be bipolar. I'd hop in the truck and roll out, but it's not that simple. Believe me, you'll still feel the highs and lows of life. If you're on mood stabilizers, just not going to try to kill yourself after having a bender in Vegas. Would you say that you have a healthy relationship with food now? Yeah. Do I have a healthier relationship with food? Yeah. I try to listen to my body. And so like, you know, there might be some week where you're just like, you just want your body's like, just eat steak and, you know, whatever. And then the next week it's like, Oof, okay, no, just have vegetables and maybe a little bit of soup or something. If you listen, if you get in tune with your body, your body tells you exactly what it is that you need to eat. And that's the thing, all these diets, oh, don't eat this, don't eat that. It's like, eat what your body's telling you to eat. You know, life's not like a book or a movie where like, and now my trouble is done, you know? Right. And they lived happily ever after. Yeah. That's why people love like into the woods or things like that. You know what I mean? Like what really, what really happens? What is a happy ending? Like, so is it fun to overcome this stuff? No, but it's satisfying sometimes. It makes me feel strong and it makes me feel like I can be there for other people. Connection is the primary way that Randy gets through. He's a good father and an empathetic friend and is always looking for ways to make connections with people who have gone through something similar. I have a friend today, uh, my friend who he's two days on the wagon and he's you know, crippling alcohol to the point where it's like it's, it's a handicap. He can't get out of the house. Hmm. Two days on two days on the wagon. And I'm very proud of him. You know, that's the thing about people who struggle with addiction, people who people who struggle with um, uh, depression Everywhere we find each other, it's a, it's a nation of two. Um, it's an embassy of two. It's like, you know, it's the same feeling that I, I get, you know, my Judaism is very important to me. You know, I was at a kid's birthday party a couple of weeks ago and we went, went swimming, went swimming with my son for the first time. And somebody noticed, oh, he's got a Mogan Dobbin around his neck. And uh, um, there was another guy who had the same thing and he had one too. And then, and I didn't know this guy, never met him, don't know what his deal, but we held each other. We hugged. And I, and I, that's exactly what I said to him. I said, wherever we find each other, we are an embassy of two. I didn't know. I, like I said, I don't even know this guy's name, but I would die for him and his family. And the, the only kinship, that's the only, that's the only kinship I can compare, uh, two addicts finding each other, two depressed people finding each other is a tradition that goes back thousands of years. And now he's more open with his family. And I'm very real with other people who are addict, you know, like it's my uncle, he's recovering alcoholic, you know, and we'll talk frankly about it. I'll be like, you know, when you were deep in your disease, this is how you made me feel. And this is the language that, and he's an art, artsy person and a, and a progressive forward link and just kind of cool person. So he was more willing to talk about these kind of things. But our family is just now developing the language to talk about this. How would you say that your condition affects those around you, your loved ones, your friends, and sort of compare it to before you got treatment and after you got treatment? Sure. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, has it affected my family? I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a roller coaster, you know, uh, I think it's affected them all in different ways. You know, I'll, I'll come over just like, 
ranting and ranting and then they're just like okay whoa you know and then i'll you know i'll you know come over and it'd be like super negative you know what i mean and like this is the me under control you know what I mean? mm-hmm. this is the me who's like i'm gonna get angry but i'm not gonna go you know take eight tabs of acid but it's still like like i said you will definitely feel the highs and lows you will definitely feel it uh but you're just able i mean it's like yeah like it's fun to go skydiving, I bet, but like you want to have a parachute. Like you can still even be like crazy. You know what I mean? Like I like to, I like to think that I'm still like, you know, we want to destigmatize like crazy. I'm like, I don't think I'm crazy, but like I feel like I'm crazy in the fun way. Like let's get crazy. And that doesn't have to mean like drugs right. or partying, but like right. get weird. Like be weird, right. you know? Be silly. Be, right. be silly. Right. Right. I like that. Like you said, there was no discussion of mental health issues in your family. And I think those issues were trying to bring them out more and trying to make sure they're discussed more and, and that we're more open about it. How do you define success for yourself? And, and do you feel successful as a person now? Yeah. Um, you can't get too wrapped up in how you've just, how only you feel about yourself and you can't get too wrapped up in what other people feel about yourself. You go around and you're just thinking about yourself and what you think of yourself all day. You're not going to be successful. If you go around and just be like, oh, what does everyone think of me? You're not going to be successful either. But if you feel good about yourself and other people around you like you, then you are successful, you know, because if there's enough people around you, like you'll, you'll be sort of taken care of. That's why I have this, like, I'm not really like, I, even though I'm very, um, connected to my Judaism, I'm not really a a religious person, but I have this rule, which is always pray for somebody else. If you're going to pray and I'm not telling anybody what to do, but only pray for other people. I like that. Yeah. And then you you think like, well, if I don't pray for myself, then, you know, who's going to be looking out for me? But if you're the kind of person who prays for other people, I bet you you're also the kind of person that there's somebody out there that's like praying for you. So, you know, what what advice do you have for someone that's confronting issues similar to yours or um, ways for people to be able to, to get through, as, as we call the name of the podcast? This is my general advice I give to everybody. Never take anything in your professional life personally and never take anything in your personal life seriously. And you'll, mm. you'll be very happy. And I don't mean like, you know, don't think of things as serious, but like it's all pretty funny. And uh, when it comes to stuff that's going on in your professional life, whether you're in the arts or you're in business or science or whatever, it's not about you. Can you tell me when you get to a difficult place, what gives you hope? Well, I have a reason why I'm doing things now. You know, Mm -hmm. when, when you don't have anybody, you just do what feels good then. Uh, and you're just doing it for yourself, or sometimes you're not even doing it for anything. When you have a family, you part of of being a leader in your family is that you have hope that things will be better for your kids than they were for you. So if you can't guarantee that your son's going to have, or your daughter's going to have a bigger house or a bigger TV mm-hmm. or a better life you can always make sure that 
they are uh, better people than yourself. is made possible with the support of USC Hillel through the Bradley Sonnenberg Wellness Initiative. It's produced by Hannah Beal, Victorian Moulier, Micah Smith, and me, Andrea Sonnenberg. Original music by Micah Smith. Thank you for listening. <laughs>